Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf and welcome to my podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess. In today's podcast, I have a really important discussion with Professor Sam Tamimi. This is part two and we are discussing ADHD in depth. Professor Sam Tamimi is a consultant child psychiatrist in the National Health Service in the UK, as well as a professor of child psychiatry and mental health improvement at the University of Lincoln, UK. He has published over 130 articles and many chapters and five books relating to mental health and childhood. In this podcast today, which is part two, we dive into ADHD. We talk about how the manufacturing of ADHD has come about, how there is no characteristic genetic abnormality, how brain imaging studies have not uncovered any specific characteristic abnormality of ADHD, nor characteristic chemical imbalance associated with ADHD. We also talk about what we should be doing and the truth behind what is happening and how we can help children that have been labeled with ADHD. So join me in this podcast today. Sammy, it's so wonderful having you back again for part two of this discussion where we really got into diagnosis and the danger of diagnosis in the biomedical model, which is really not for psychiatry, which is just not working, turning the the, the medicalization of misery, as Jana Moncrief talks about, and what you, you talk about pathologizing childhood and how it's grown. And you're a psychiatrist and you are very aware of what's gone wrong in your profession, yet you still practice. So it's that was an amazing discussion. And we ended off part one talking about a little bit about ADHD being not being this thing that people think it is. So I'd love to dive into ADHD in depth in this session. And I'm, with your permission, I am going to read a little section of your book in Chapter 3, Insane Medicine, which is an absolute must-have for a parent, therapist, psychiatrist, medical professional. It's something that should be in every person's home because you really do help people understand in a, in a scientific but very simplistic way what has, how we've messed up mind management and how this is impacting people. So welcome and thank you for joining me again today. Thank you very much for having me again. Oh, it's an absolutely wonderful pleasure. Okay, so I am going to read just a little section from the beginning of Chapter 3 from your book, Insane Medicine. The title is The Manufacture of Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. And we ended off the discussion with that title, the manufacturer. And, and, and I, want, I, I love that you said that because it really has been manufactured. And back in the 80s when I was training, we were being told about the danger of the manufacturing of ADHD and what the impact would be. And here we sit all these years later and what was predicted has come to, come to pass. And you challenge that and explain. So what is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder ADHD? The conventional answer to this question is that it is hyperactivity, inattentiveness, and impulsivity that are caused by neurological dysfunction rooted primarily in genetics and abnormalities in the development of the brain. As a result, it is often referred to alongside autism as a neurodevelopmental disorder. This way of imagining the significance of such behaviors, firstly in children and then with important modifications in adults, started in North America and has been exported throughout the world. Going hand in glove with this neuro paradigm are the pharmaceutical treatments using stimulants such as Ritalin, Adderall and Stratera, which have similarly dominated the treatment of children who get diagnosed with ADHD and played a major part in the construction of ADHD as having neurological origins. 
And I'm going to stop there and ask you to pick up from there and walk us through what has happened, why, and what can we do about it. In thinking about this, maybe the way of trying to understand this is to go back, as I was doing in the first part, to what are the essential assumptions that are embedded in these constructs? Where did they come from? Why do we have them? And really importantly, what sort of scientific evidence do we have to support them? So maybe I can start Absolutely. with just unpicking that a little bit. So in, in a way, I'm going backwards. Rather than thinking about how it started, I'm thinking about is the current way we're thinking about this concept of ADHD, does it have any empirical support? And the starting point, if you remember some of the things we discussed in the previous interview, is that as putting this forward as a medical construct that's diagnostic, in other words, refers to some sort of primary or proximal cause. And if we want to go along with the idea that this has some sort of biological neurological basis, which is part of the assumption with ADHD, because it is referred to as a neurodevelopmental condition, in other words, a condition to do with the development of the brain, we have to start with the assumption, the null hypothesis. I think we discussed the null mm -hmm. hypothesis we last did. time. We did, yeah. How, how in science, and particularly medical science, you, you start by assuming your hypothesis is incorrect and therefore, you have to be able to prove that your null hypothesis isn't correct. In other words, there is some evidence. This is an important point to note, because in all the years that I have been critiquing concepts like ADHD, and, and, and much of my critical psychiatry perspective started with ADHD, which I was as a trainee in psychiatry, witnessing its expansion in the early to mid-90s, 1990s in the UK, there, there is often, a, if you like, a counter-criticism that comes from those who support the concept who seem to think it's up to the critics to prove that ADHD isn't a supportable new concept in terms of genetics or neurodevelopment. Actually, that's not the way science works. It is the opposite. If you suggest a hypothesis, you have to show evidence in favor of that hypothesis. And until you can, you must assume that your hypothesis has no basis in reality. So the, there are three linchpins to the hypothesis about ADHD being a neurodevelopmental condition. That's firstly a genetic loading, and you have to assume that there is no genetic predisposition, and that should be your starting assumption until you have demonstrated in a replicable way that there is. Now, the idea that ADHD has a strong genetic component, which has been a very prevalent myth, is based on 
may, primarily twin studies. I don't know if we got the chance to talk about that last time. No, we time. didn't. No, we'll, you, we'll go into this a bit yeah. more. Yeah, if that's okay. I'd love to. So please do. The, the idea with twin studies is if identical twins have the same condition diagnosed in them, more often than non-identical twins, that is evidence that there is a strong genetic component. Because identical twins share 100% of the genes, their genetic makeup is identical, whereas non-identical twins, on average, share about 50% of their genes, as with many other siblings. So with ADHD, this is then pointed out that because it is more likely for you, for both twins to have a diagnosis of ADHD if they're identical than if they're non-identical, this is pointed to as the primary source of evidence that ADHD is genetic. There were a number of other studies, including family and things like that, but this is the main linchpin. And this this has been around for a long time, and before the amount of molecular genetic studies that we now have were available. So I'll come back to that in a minute, because what the molecular genetic studies are founding is really important in understanding this component. So the problem with arriving at your figures for heritability from comparing identical to non-identical twins is that this might work well for you know chromosomal conditions or certain physical conditions although it still has some issues but when it comes to behavioral presentations or subjective experiences you know like your mood and so on it is not possible to disentangle what might be considered environmental from what might be considered genetic. It is not possible to entangle nature and nurture. This has always been the case. Yeah. This is because studies of identical twins that have just looked at them from a psychological point of view have found that they are different to non-identical twins in that they're more likely to swap, to play games on people, swap roles. They're more likely to be dressed in the same clothes. Other people can sometimes confuse them. So being one of an identical twin is a psychosocial unit in itself. So that method cannot be used to estimate heritability. This is known as the equal environment assumption. For, for heritability to be estimated in that way, you have to assume that identical and non-identical twins can be assumed to have equal environments. But the equal environment assumption doesn't hold. Mm-hmm. So really, the only way to establish a genetic component is through molecular genetic studies. In other words, looking at the actual genes, not surrogates for the genes, but the actual genes. Now, this has become a lot more available to do since the Human Genome Project transcribed the whole human genome and our technology has come on rapidly. So we're able to do whole genome scans and we're able to do them quicker and cheaper than we have done, which has enabled us to build up large databases 
of people's genetic fingerprints, if you like. The early genetic studies kept coming up with various suggestions about possible genes or a collection of genes that may be implicated in ADHD, but each of those, when other groups came on to study them, couldn't find the same associations. So the early molecular genetic studies put forward one hypothesis after another, and each of them fell by the wayside. In 2010, there was a study that was publicized around the world, which was the one that claimed to great acclaim and was in the press. And I remember hearing about it in the press in this country. And this country, that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the proof, this was the, the lead author talked about, we can now say with certainty that this is a genetic disorder and the brains of children with this condition are different to others. That's not a logical jump anyway from genes directly to brains. Mm -mm. And anybody who knows a little bit about how genes work would tell you. Wouldn't say that. All all genes do is is code for protein. So there's, there's quite a few steps. But anyway, put that to one side. Because the actual study, in fact, when you analyze it, tells you a story that is the opposite of what has been claimed. So what they were doing in this study, they were looking for bits of genetic code that are repeated where they shouldn't be or missing where they should be. These are called copy number variants. And our, you know, our technology has got better and better at identifying these copy number variants. There were two phases to the study. In the first phase, they had about 350 children. In the second phase, they had about 450 children who had a diagnosis of ADHD, who were they were comparing with children who didn't have any psychiatric condition, who were just drawn from the data pool of database that they have, and there was about a thousand children in that database. And what the study was claiming was that f- around 14% of those with a diagnosis of ADHD had these copy number variants, but also 7% in the control group had these copy number variants. In other words, having copy number variants in itself wasn't a sign that you would develop ADHD. They were just approximately 7% more of children in the ADHD group had these copy number variants. It also means that if you did have copy number variants, you were more likely not to have ADHD than have ADHD simply by just simple arithmetics because of the prevalence of of ADHD assumed to be around 5%. So simple arithmetics would tell you that this would, would never work as a genetic marker, if you like. But the problems didn't stop there with this study. They had tested the IQ, which is a standardized way of assessing somebody's learning abilities. Now, there are lots of issues with the IQ, but just stick with it at face value for now. If you get uh, the IQ, the average IQ, the way the IQ tests are done is that you score 100 if you have an average IQ, above 100 if you're above average IQ, and below 100 if you're below average IQ. And when you get to 70 IQ, you start to enter into the different definitions of 
learning difficulties. So an IQ 50 to 70, for example, is considered mild learning difficulties. So in this study, they had tested the IQ of the people who were diagnosed with ADHD. And whilst they hadn't for the control group, with a 1,000 children, you would assume that they had an average IQ of 100, which is the, the average. But what they found was that in their group with ADHD, those who had an IQ below 70 now had a 33% chance of having copy number variants. So this is way higher than the 14% chance of the ADHD group as a whole. Now, there are lots of implications of this. There was about 50 children or something like that who had in the larger group who had an IQ below 70. The implication of that is that this now has to be controlled for, because in scientific terms, this now becomes a confounding variable. In other words, if you have lots of children, a lot more children with an IQ below 100 than the control group, given that an IQ below 70 has so much higher likelihood of having copy number variants, it could be that even that extra 7% over and above the control group might be totally accounted for by the fact that you have a group with a lower average IQ. And in fact, the group did have a lower than average IQ. The average IQ in the ADHD group in this study was 84. And this brings up some very uncomfortable questions. Because one of the things that it cannot, I, I cannot believe that the people, the, the, the scientific group who did this study weren't aware of, because this is just basic, is the problem of the confound of learning difficulties. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So what is going on here? It would have been perfectly viable for them to have redone their analysis by picking out a group with an average IQ of 100 so that they could have a valid comparison with the control group. Mm -hmm. And they didn't do that. Well, did they do that? That's a question on my mind. Did yeah. they actually do that? I actually wrote to the authors, the lead authors. I yeah. wrote to them twice asking if they would be, you know, because I thought we should have a look at this again. They've got the data. Exactly. I could put together a separate group to have a look at this. I never got any answer. So is this incompetence or is it fraud? I don't know. Yeah. Of course, I don't know the answer to this. But I suspect that they may have done that analysis and realized that the thing that they've staked their career on and they're staking their career on is keeps drawing a blank. So they twisted the data, which happens so often. It's more subtle than twisting the data. It's about what you report and how you report Actually, it. True. Yeah. So they hadn't done the thing that they should have done. They had reported on, on the various things and they had reported, you know, that this group with an IQ below 70 had a 33%. But they hadn't done the most obvious thing that you would need to do. So it looks to me as if this 
study has actually, in all but their abstract, proven the opposite. If they're going to use this as proof, then they should be honest and say, we we still haven't broken the null hypothesis. We're exactly. still no nearer to getting to anything like the genetic makeup. Now, since then, there has been a lot of other studies looking at the genetics of uh, ADHD, and there is now a big data bank, which has several thousand in it. And they use various types of techniques, including genome association, looking for rare or, or looking for overall differences, looking for rare occurrences. There's all sorts of different techniques that you use. And as much as they try to say that, oh, yeah, we found these these few numbers here that seem to occur more often, again, a lot of the time it doesn't seem to be controlled for in terms of learning difficulties, which is, by the way, in the psychiatric genetic research, it's the one that comes up again and again, that there does appear to be an association with a greater likelihood of either abnormal or different genetics. Now, you shouldn't translate that as having a one-to-one correspondence with the likelihood of having psychiatric or psychological difficulties, because we also know that if you have learning difficulties, you're also more likely to be bullied, you're more likely to experience trauma, you're more likely to experience abuse. So it could still be that the reason they've got higher problems is that is the connection might be that it's affecting their neurological development, for example, their ability to process information, their ability to coordinate, and uh, or, and it's these things that are leading to how other people react to them. And the, so it doesn't necessarily follow, but it does seem to be the case that mm-hmm. learning difficulties is the one area where I think with confidence you can say there appears to be a likely genetic component for a significant proportion. But when it comes to ADHD, the cupboard is empty, null hypothesis stand. You cannot, in scientific terms, talk about ADHD being a genetic condition. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. A lot of us will drop anything to go and help someone we care about. We'll go out of our way to treat other people well. But how often do we give ourselves the same treatment? One of my resolutions for 2022 is to treat myself like I would my best friend. And one way I'm going to do this is to spend more time doing the things that make and bring me joy, such as walking my two puppies or reading novels in the bath. Therapy is another great way we can take care of ourselves. Indeed, you don't have to be in a crisis mode to benefit from therapy. Therapy can provide preventative and protective strategies so that when things do get tough, you'll know what to do. It's one of the best gifts you can give yourself. And this month, BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you that you matter just as much as everyone else does. And therapy is a great way to make sure you show up for yourself. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. 
Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp Online Therapy. Cleaning up the mental mess listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash drleaf. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash drleaf. The link and details will be in the show notes. When I was first practicing, we would, we would, this is exactly the training I had, that it was a learning disability, there was a cognitive impairment, yeah. some sort of intellectual challenge, and it was a very small percentage, and there was, there was specific you know, tre- treatment, not drugs. It was you gave them therapy, you helped them to learn how to learn and that kind of thing. Skills. Yeah. Skills, skills. And yeah. then I watched in my trajectory of my career, I watched suddenly every second child was coming in within a sort of in the 90s, the 2000s, was coming into my practice with this label, whereas in the so jump from a sort of 2% to this almost 80% of kids coming in or adults coming in and thinking, well, this is not really the case. I just say that to say I saw that in my own career. Yeah. And then, you know, this is why I continue to do the research and why I do what I do. So just, yeah, I'm yeah, glad I you it. have. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yes. And I think I can say a similar story myself in terms of, you know, what I've seen over the years. And and this, you know, when I was first training before ADHD was really migrating in, you had to exclude, you had to first consider the possibility of learning difficulties. Exactly. And that was an exclusion criteria for a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you had to exclude the neurological potential, like traumatic brain yeah. injury or tumor exactly. or something like exactly. that. So it was a category yeah. of, you know, we had a clear distinction between neurological yeah. learning disability and then the impact of environment, as you quite clearly yeah. said, the increased bullying, whatever. Now we're looking at socioeconomic and I mean, socio- psychosocial factors and environment. And that was separated versus now it's all just blended under mental psychiatric yeah. diagnoses. That's absolutely right. So the cupboard is empty. There is no genes. We should not be talking about this as a genetic condition. Yeah. And it's similar, you know, to just cut a long story short. You can do exactly the same analysis related to looking at neuroanatomy, looking at brain scans, functional and anatomical. Various bits of the brain has been suggested as being smaller or different or there's uh, asymmetry is the latest one. And again, it starts from the assumption that there is something in there. The, the, I mean, the, the interesting thing with the genetic stuff is, is how difficult. It kind of causes a form of cognitive dissonance mm. for those people who've dedicated their career to assuming that there's genetic. So now the yeah. genetic researchers are talking about the missing genes. In other words, they say it is there. You just haven't found we, it yet. We just haven't found it. Well, the most likely reason you haven't found it is because it was never there in the first place. First and place. as a scientist, it's your responsibility to assume that, not exactly. the other way around. Exactly. And it's the same when it comes to brain scanning. That's why there's no brain scan. There's no test because nobody can find anything characteristic. These people, there are people, and I know because I've spoken to Joanna Moncrief about this. There are people in the United States that are using spec scans and fMRI and MRI, and they are saying that this is an ADHD brain. And I mean, you you can't say that. And then they're tracking treatment and you know tracking the sort of mental health trajectory and how this that Ritalin or whatever is treating that. But they're showing scans to to people, and that's so it's so 
it's so influential because you see this brain scan, think, oh, I've got ADHD, but it's so detrimental to a person's selfhood and, and who they see themselves Absolutely. as. It's like modern yeah. day phrenology, and it's, it's frightening to see this happening. So I know you mentioned about the scans, but I don't know if you want to, and I, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. I just wanted to comment if on the, in the United States how, how, how dominant this has become, this kind of brain scan approach to ADHD and all psychiatric. It's been used by people to, to prove psychiatric disorders. Yeah, there's, there's something about brain scans that sort of melts your intelligence. You sort of <laughs> look a at a brain point. scan. You sort of look at a brain scan and think, oh, that's science. This is scientific. And it's just a big con. I yeah. mean, you mentioned phrenology, but this is the modern phrenology. Yeah. Phrenology, of course, was very popular in the mid to late 1800s. In fact, the British Phrenological Society only finally disbanded in something like 1962. Oh, my goodness. It, it went on for a good decade. It had its own scientific journals, oh, people, God. but it was extremely popular in Victorian England. People used to flock for miles to come and have your characteristics read by somebody sort of feeling and measuring the bumps on your head and they'd show you these maps and they'd tell you, you know, this part means that you're more likely to be, you know, emotional about certain things and this part shows that you're very mechanically orientated. You know, it was just total rubbish. But this is what we're doing. Instead of doing it on the outside of the brain, we're doing it with these meaningless pictures that just show... When I was a trainee in psychiatry, one of the, I was working with an eating disorders team and a, and a very well-known and sort of internationally influential eating disorders consultant. One of the bits of research that I was involved with was brain scanning of young people with anorexia. The consultant gave me the task of going away and doing the research on the kind of neuroanatomy and neurophysiology. So I, I kind of really got to grips with these functional brain scans in particular and what they reveal. And, and we were doing SPECT scannings in, um, so this is, you know, this is going back a good few years. Yeah. And the thing that really struck me I mean, the, the research uh, got published uh, and it was received with a, a lot of publicity. And one of the things I do remember is that the department I was working at, um, if, in fact, it was before it was published, it was at a big international conference that was covered by the media in the UK. We had people ringing up uh, and saying, uh, I've got anorexia. Does that mean I've got a hole in my brain? Gosh, um, oh my so, God. You know, People were, because what they were, what the research was saying is that the left side of, uh, I can't even remember which parts, I think it might be the limbic or whatever, had reduced blood flow in those areas or reduced. Uh, but what I realized is there is a big debate in that field when you do these types of functional scans. Are you reflecting a state? Or are you measuring a trait? You'll be Very aware good. of this as somebody mm -hmm. who's, who's, you know, is this what a brain looks like mm -hmm. when somebody is starving themselves? Or is this what happened? This is what the brain looked like before they started starving themselves yeah. and it's in some way involved in their decision to starve themselves. And 
my impression of the literature, because I got to know it a lot better afterwards, is that it's a it's a state. It you can't tell anything about causation through functional brain exactly. scans. You can you can only show a reflection of what it looks like Thank for you. somebody to be in that state of mind. That's it. Exactly. Sammy, some of the work that we've been doing with my team is we use the most important thing is the person's narrative, obviously, and all the psychological measures yeah. and whatever. But what I've tried to do is to try and get people away from this very neurobiological approach is use QEEG, because I like just what the multiple you know, millions of, of, of readings you can take. But I always say to people, if I show you a head map, I'm not showing you a disorder. I am showing you the impact, the state of the brain in that moment, where you're at, and it can change in the next moment. So it's not really indica- indicative of diagnostically, it's not a biomarker, it's, re- it's no. the response. It's the response. Exactly. It's the- and, and you will know that because you're familiar with neuroplasticity and the fact yeah. that, you know, these functional pictures change depending on, exactly. you know, what other changes has, has happened in your mental state. Exactly. Yeah constantly changing so to use them as a biomarker and people do that they'll say well you know it i mean you know what's happening out there and i wanted to bring that up because you in the book you you do talk about how we can't there's a couple of landmark studies that they said they've said this is the adhd push i think it was 2017 or 2018 or 2019 just before COVID. there was that one study that had there's a group which produced this study again to a lot of the publicity in 2017. Yeah. They produced right. another one in 2019, and they actually produced another one last year. And they've kind of lost interest in their original one because it got so so hammered. But they still, in the in the study that they published last year, they're still referring to their 2017 study in an Goodness. unproblematic way. And where they've got to now is now that they're looking at something called asymmetry. Mm, I they're, hear that all the time now. Yeah, so that's that's the kind of latest fad. And it, the, the latest 2021 study is just as empty of data, of meaningful data, of clinically significant or scientifically significant. So just briefly again, yeah. The 2017 study, which was a kind of what they termed as a mega-analysis. I don't know why they decided to <laughs> use that rather mm-hmm. than a meta-analysis, but anyway, that's what they, they had decided to, be to call it. Yeah, they had to be. Basically, they, had, they put together the studies from 23 different sites that had looked at the structure of the brain and compared children with diagnosis of ADHD and a control group. Now, the pattern, if you looked at it by actually the different places where the studies had been done, was very typical of what the ADHD brain research has been so far, which is the picture of consistent inconsistencies. So if you just looked at Mm -hmm. them by, by center of study, and you looked at the region of the brain that's supposed to have the largest differences... There are so many different things you could say about this study. But just just sticking with that, five of the 23 centers actually had, on average, the children with ADHD had larger than the control group, this area of the brain. Then there was, I think, eight areas that had a smaller and the rest didn't have any difference. So that's typical 
of what the... But when they number crunch them together, they manage to find that overall, they come to the conclusion that overall, this area is smaller. There were all sorts of things to do with technical, but you're hiding the picture of consistent inconsistency by doing this. Yeah, the sti- you can play. You can do anything with statistics. Yeah. You can make anything work yeah. and come out in another pattern mm. if you do enough statistics. But they actually published again in an appendix. They published the IQ data, and a separate research group used this IQ data to estimate the impact of IQ and said once you estimate the impact of IQ, because there were actually IQ differences between these different centers. Once again, mm-hmm. it disappeared. So we have the same picture. Once you control for confounding, even these tiny differences disappear. There's no neurodevelopmental. There's nothing. There's no neurodevelopmental differences. This is what people are being told. This is what they'll come to me in a conference. It's a myth. myth. As much as the chemical imbalance, which is the other area. Chemical imbalance is a huge myth. And it's a myth that's been perpetuated in order to support the prescription of stimulants. Yeah. So it's based on the idea that because the uh, medications that are have been used and are being used for those who get the diagnosis increase the production and availability of particularly dopamine, to a lesser extent noradrenaline, but particularly dopamine. So it stimulates dopamine. That ADHD is therefore the result of a lack of dopamine. Now, anybody who's looked for extra dopamine has not found it. This is this is one of the great myths in psychiatry in general. Nobody's finding any no. Any chemical imbalances until we start giving the medications. It's the medications that cause chemical imbalances exactly. because they cause changes in receptor density because the brain has homeostatic mechanisms. It knows when there's too much of something compared to what it's used to being produced, and so it takes compensatory measures. The thing that people maybe only partly understand is that the stimulants that are being used are, in terms of their chemical effects, really not that different to amphetamines. Some of them are actually amphetamines and cocaine. So these are drugs that we refer to when people take them recreationally as dangerous. Yeah. And And we talk about them being dangerous for very good reasons. They increase your likelihood of having heart complications, of having strokes, of even having heart attacks. They cause a drop in your appetite. They interfere with your growth hormone. They do all sorts of things. And the other thing that they do is that people who take them regularly, not only do they get addicted to it, but they get dependent on it. So dependence and addiction are slightly different. Addiction is when you get cravings. Usually, if a doctor prescribes you something, you don't get cravings because you're not taking it for the reasons of you know, getting a high. Mm-hmm. 
But the physical effects, which is dependence, does happen in the same way. So this is why if you abuse cocaine and take cocaine regularly, it, you, you find you're having to take more and more to get the same hit. So this is what I mean by the brain having compensatory mechanisms. Mm -hmm. What's happening is the brain is turning off its dopamine receptors so that it tries to level out the fact that you're stimulating more dopamine, which is why if you've been taking it regularly for a while and you suddenly stop, you get withdrawal symptoms. Exactly. And this is the case really for pretty much any substance, legal, illegal, doctor-prescribed, not doctor-prescribed, that affects the neurotransmitters in the brain. They all, to some degree, some faster than others and some with more intensity than others, but even something as mild as coffee. If you take a lot of coffee every day and stop, don't be surprised if you know your wife or husband or whoever complains that you're, you're being irritable. Because, exactly. you know, the, this, the, the, these are the effects. So if we're to prescribe this, particularly to children, and it's shocking to me that I hear of, and I've come across in clinical practice, children as young as three yes. being prescribed. I mean, what the hell is going on? Oh, that we've, got, we've, we've got to that, to that extent. But if you're prescribing something that has those sorts of effects, particularly on a developing brain, but on any brain, you really must have good evidence that there is clear blue water in terms of outcomes between those who don't take the medication and those who do. And this is another area where I'm afraid the clinical research is really not that good in terms of telling you about, well, it is it is good in terms of informing you about the outcomes you're likely to expect, but it's not that good in terms of the outcomes. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It doesn't paint the rosy picture that it has been painted, that you have ADHD exactly. as a diagnosis and the treatment is Ritalin or Adderall or Stratera. You know, if I think of it, just very quickly, going back to clinical practice, we worked as a team. If a child came in, we eliminated all the neurologicals, the, you know, the low IQ. I know there are problems around IQ, but looking at the potential cognitive. And then you'd work as a team and you'd spend time not just giving a diagnosis. We, we would like spend six, seven sessions as a team with a child to try and understand what skills and what environments and context and story 
but that takes time and money. Now it's 10 minutes or 15 minutes of label diagnosis medication. It's such a, and it's, it's not, it's the res- results, as you mentioned, it's showing us that this is not better, it's worse. So I just didn't mean to interrupt yeah. you there, but it's just, no, I get so upset about this because I've seen this in reality and that's why I do what I do as well. And I know it's why you do what yeah. you do. But it's very, very seductive because very. stimulants have a dramatic effect sometimes and that dramatic effect is quite quick but it's no different to the effect that you or I or anybody else would have to taking stimulants. It's why stimulants historically have been used widely Mm -hmm. in all sorts of ways, from tonics for soldiers in battle to workers in plantations so that they can keep doing repetitive, boring work, to a slimming aid. Even Sigmund Freud had a period of time where he was quite enamored with cocaine before he began to realize it was it was resulting in in some really quite unhelpful side effects and effects on him so it's been used widely because it does have dramatic effects people Mm. take amphetamines or cocaine when they go to a nightclub because it gives you a kind of tunnel vision Mm -hmm. it makes you very absorbed in what's happening right here and now in the moment, which is kind of useful for kids who are bored at school and finding it hard to stay on task with a piece of homework or listen to the teacher or whatever, because it appears to shut them up, appears to make them quieter, appears to make them more docile. What's actually happening is that they are just getting absorbed in what they're doing. But as they get older and the tasks that they need to do are getting more complicated and where you have to do lateral thinking, things don't seem to work quite as well. So what what tends to happen, and this is what the outcome research has found, that in the short term, you can demonstrate that people appear to be rated as being much improved in their behavior particularly by teachers, also to some extent by parents, generally not the young person themselves. They don't often like the effects. But but as you follow them up for the years, those initial effects seem to wear off. And what happens in this is so this is more of partly a perspective from practice as well as from the outcome research, is that you have to start prescribing more and more because of that tolerance effect. But does that lead to improved outcomes? Well, the long-term outcome literature says that in terms of outcomes, there are no recognizable, measurable improvements in the long term in terms of your academic, in terms of your behavior, in terms of your peer relationships. And where there are differences between you and persons who didn't go down the medication route, they're more often in favor of the person who didn't go down the medication route, as well as having exposed yourself to the physical effects. So children are on average shorter and lighter, but particularly shorter. There's some odd thing that seems to happen with some adolescents on stimulants where they seem to to gain weight, whether it's some sort of catch-up after the suppression of appetite, it's it's not clear. But it has these, so 
you've gone through a period of being exposed to things that interfere with the development of your body. There is also a study that found that they had higher blood pressure. Again, that's an expected outcome of being on something that actually stimulates your blood pressure. So the evidence that it results in improvement that's worth the price is, is simply not there. But there's the whole psychological thing Mm. where you and those around you are now have been convinced to buy into the idea that there's something potentially lifelong that's always going to be there that's wrong with your brain. The one thing I can predict about children, which I always talk to parents about, is that they're going to change. It's just that you don't know how they're going to change and what way they're going to change their interests, their body, their what they like, what they don't like. But when we start labeling children and start seeing them through this tunnel vision, we're limiting ours and theirs imagination. There is an important study from Ireland that was published a couple of years ago. It's one of the few studies of this kind that I've come across, and I wish more people would do this sort of study, but they latched on to an epidemiological study of a, of a large group of children, and they had various behavioral screenings and things like that. And they followed children from nine years old to 13 years old, so an average of four years with these various behavioral screenings and interviews with parents and looking at their academic achievements and so on. And there was a group of children who were diagnosed with ADHD and another group of children who could have been diagnosed with ADHD but weren't, so had similar levels of behavioral challenges on an ADHD rating scale and similar severity, so they matched them. And by the time they were age 13, the group who had the label of ADHD compared to the group who didn't but had similar were doing much worse. So it didn't say anything about what treatments they were getting, but they had poorer self-concept. They had more peer relationship difficulties. They were more likely to be labeled as having depression and anxiety. So new diagnoses. Exactly, new diagnoses. So across a range of measures, getting a diagnosis at age nine was a predictor for a deteriorating state of mental health compared to those who didn't. These are the sorts of things that should make you stop and think. Yeah. If you want to know one of the secrets to success, it's definitely better sleep, which improves mind, brain and body health. That's why I have added the Open app to my daily mental self-care routine. Open is your personal mindfulness studio. It is a space to explore your edge through breathwork, meditation, movement and sound. It combines breathwork, meditation and fitness. And they have a great community of people doing it together, all committed to personal growth. Open is something I do every evening that sets me up for a successful night's rest so that I am ready to take on the challenges of the day ahead. It helps me clear my mind and brain before bed and really helps with sleep. I also do their breath work in the morning before practicing my mind management routine, which helps me decompress and get ready for the day ahead. Then I pop into one of their fitness classes to build strength and mobility, which has become an important part of my routine as I age. Plus, I love that the program is incredibly well designed and easy to use. 
If you want to get on my daily routine, you can get 30 days free of Open by visiting withopen.com. That's withopen.com forward slash code Dr. Leaf. Again, 30 days free by visiting withopen.com. That's withopen.com code Dr. Leaf. And don't forget to follow your friends on the app so that you can join the community as well. We should be thinking, but there's such a dominant yeah. message in society. We, the parents are even made to feel guilty. And you have a whole section in your book, which yeah. I'd love to talk about in, in, the, in our next interview, is, it, it is how parents are, like, you, you, you've got to give your child, if you don't do this, you're actually mistreating your child, you're abusing your child. Now, Sammy, I did research back in the early 90s when this, I saw this happening and for my PhD research, mm-hmm. where I took work with a large group of children, just various overviews and teachers, but I, uh, developing skills. So it was a large group in, of children that had various different issues, whether it was cognitive cerebral palsy, so and then just basic learning disability. But not we didn't talk about the ADHD. Was not there were some people that had that diagnosis, hmm. but it was in that. And what I did was inter, in, train teachers to actually train how they how they delivered the information. So skills-based, get to teach children how to learn, how to think, and then we work with the children too. The results were so dramatic. We looked at the trend and the trend altered, and we did this over a period of 12 months. So it was was a fairly large number of people, and it was also a large, a long period of time. And I've since taken that research and continue to do it, and I replicated the study recently in the United States. And we found that the school system is just unreal. It's teached to the test and all just labeled and so on. And just changing the system, just introducing a skills-based approach. We got kids that were kind of written out of the system doing so well. So I say that to say, when you take away the diagnosing and labeling, like you're saying, and you, which are irrelevant anyway, because they have no foundation, when you remove all the biological, chemical, and genetic myths, mythology, mm. mythology, you actually, and you teach adults and children the skills of how to learn and how to manage their mind, things change. You're absolutely right. The- it's not surprising that the clinical outcomes are not great when you go down this route because when you start conceptualizing behaviors as symptoms as opposed to behaviors, then mm. in the medical way of operating, your job is to reduce symptoms yeah. of the condition. So it narrows your focus. It narrows your focus to certain behaviors and trying to get rid of them or trying to control them in some way. Mm. And then what happens is that when things are going on in someone's life, and this is, this is you'll, you'll be aware of this, that you get teachers not their fault and parents not their fault because that's what the narrative is training them to yeah, do, yeah. thinking, oh, maybe we've got the medication wrong or maybe we need to increase the dose or, mm-hmm. you know, it'd be something connected to the idea of what's going on with this medical condition that they have. Or maybe there is another diagnosis that's lurking in behind. Quite often it's autism will be the next one that yeah. will come along. Yeah, and be, and which we're going to talk about there. in a future interview, yeah. Which, which means that you're being deprived of a chance to think about and understand what that person is experiencing, what might be going on in their life. You know, therapeutically, the task is often to widen your perspective, to look at different ways of understanding what's going on, and to look at different ways in which somebody might be able to improve a situation. And and I'm a big fan of the skills-based approach, because I think 
that's what we do as we grow up. Yeah. Some of us are good at some things and some of us are not so good at, and we're all not so good at certain things. And the way we develop being better at certain things that we'd like to be better at is, is by learning about them and developing skills. And all of these other perspectives start to be whittled away when you think your task is to reduce symptoms exactly. as opposed to thinking about how you might improve their environment or their skills or how you might all work together. And also it's quite disempowering, disempowering for parents in particular who now feel that it's in the hands of a doctor yeah. to know what to do and how to do this. Mm -hmm. There's nothing I can do apart from learning about this condition so I can react differently. So you're already sort of creating some kind of special way of thinking about and engaging with these young people. I saw this happening with, with parents in my practice. And then recent, just recently, I've written a book that's due to be released next year, which is how you can help your child with their mental health. And there's, there's two parts, there's two books that I'm writing. One is the sort of depression and how that's, you know, pediatric, but how those are not true and, you know, all just how you as a parent mm -hmm. can rely on your skills and develop the skills and yeah. it's skills-based. And then the other one will be going, I've actually got a whole, I quote you all the time. There's a whole, I put in a whole chapter on, on labeling and diagnosing. But the, the point there is that, is that helping parents to realize that you can have confidence in yourself and, and you can work with your child and, you know, that you can learn how to learn and that sort of thing. And it's just so important mm. because parent, parents are telling me, they've been asking me for years to write this book because I teach about this all the time. Parents are desperate to, can I trust myself? You know, you handle yeah. that so well in your yeah. book. Can I trust myself? What do I do? I've just got to go to the expert and get a medication. Mm. And their children are not the same. So parents are desperate. So Sammy, we've only got a few minutes less, left, but I know that we, we if, I know you'll, we're uh, going to be coming back again, not for one, but many interviews, because this is so many, so many areas that are important to cover here, and so many people that listen are so desperate for help. How would you kind of summarize what we've been saying, and then just give parents some hope that if you've had a label, even adults, we know how this has now permeated and become translated into adult ADHD, huge in the United mm. States. And every second person's walking around with this label. Big market. Yeah, big, yeah. huge market. What can we say to give a little bit of hope? And we will dive into this, obviously, in another interview in more depth. There's always hope because I think the main thing to for people who've found themselves either being labeled with ADHD or have their child labeled is just to remember this is, this is a word but it doesn't represent, just ask yourself, when you got the diagnosis, did anybody do anything that would be recognized as a medical test? Did anybody tell you what is exactly wrong or different about your brain or your child's brain? I mean, the answer is, is no. So I think that's the main thing. You're, there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong in you. You're not broken. You're not disordered you're not dysregulated okay so i mean that for me is the starting so point and once you understand that of course there's hope there's there's the whole scope of what life can offer is open to you as much as it is to anyone else and you can find ways i am more and more a believer uh, see I, I think there's something that's happened in our culture that has led us to feel 
that where that there's psychological dangers all around us and it starts by painting a picture of humanity as being primarily vulnerable yeah. and childhood as so being good. full of things that could go wrong that you know uh, that you have to be on the lookout for and you have to intervene early in but the more i meet people particularly people who are really struggling the more i'm impressed by just how resilient human beings are their capacity to withstand and get through and we miss an opportunity if we're not helping them learn from suffering instead of being scared of suffering yes you speaking my language now so to what everything you say is it's just we have to help people embrace and process and reconceptualize yeah. and recognize that those labels are tying us down and not setting us free and they're yeah. not even true the science yeah. is not there and that's why yes, i'm so honored i'm so thrilled that you do the work you do and you you know you help us it's not a nice message to hear it's easier to hear oh this 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 is the package you know this is the problem this is mm. the solution but it's not that actually as you say the problem becomes the problem you know and it creates yeah. a lifelong patient and that's not what we want to do our children are not patients our children we mustn't pathologize mm. childhood we need to help a child to process through which is also why I do wrote the book I didn't do the work I do like you do and thank you for mm. what you're doing and thank you for your wisdom and I hope you'll come back again and, and dive into I'd this deeper yeah. and I'm just in awe of the way that you're able to express these important truths and I just encourage everyone to get Sammy's book Insane Medicine all of his books we'll put the links in the show notes and look so look forward to our next deep dive into this very important topic of helping people to embrace life and manage through it as yeah. opposed to trying to label and medicate it away. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com. And to sign up for my weekly newsletter, where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.